You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Ida. I'm Kate. And I'm Julia. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Duncan Van Bergen, founder of Calix Global, a platform for helping buyers assess the quality of carbon credits and build trust in the carbon markets. Duncan previously built and led the nature-based solutions platform at Shell, and before that was an associate partner at McKinsey. Duncan, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Ida. Hi, Kate. Hi, Julia. It's really nice to be here with you. So let's start with your background. How did you get interested in natural climate solutions? What were sort of the key steps in your journey and and what got you to where you are today? Well, I think my background or how I got into this is is not not dissimilar from how a lot of people get into this. I, growing up, Nature was always very important to me. Believe it or not, I was active in the scout movement. And the one thing I remember from that is we got to go out in nature and do stuff in the forest all the time. I am I'm a, I'm a runner. And as a runner, you the, the most delightful moments is when you actually are out there and see amazing nature. And I've, I've, I've run in the Alps, I've run in the Rockies, but I've also run in some beautiful city parks. And they're the environments that inspire me a lot and give me a lot of peace and is where I feel happy. So that's the very personal side of it. The perhaps less personal side of it is that I believe in the data and in the analysis. And that's more specifically around the connection between nature and climate change. And whether you look at any of the good pathway studies that have been made or the studies that that point specifically to the importance of natural climate solutions as a mitigation lever against climate change. The, the perhaps somewhat over-caricatured 3 in 30, uh, 30% of the possible solution, but less than 3% of funding. Or estimates from IETA, the International Emissions Trading Association, that shows that systems for carbon pricing with and without nature have such a different impact than the ones with nature costing us all as a planet hundreds of billions per year less. I believe in that data. And then finally, professionally also, I got involved and saw a place where after having been building businesses, running businesses for for nearly two decades, I finally got to do something that could have massive impact and where I could use everything that I'd learned in business in over 20 years. So that was all, those were all good reasons to get involved. I have to say though, that those were the reasons I got intrigued. What made me really fall for it is some of the amazing people I've met since I started working in that space. People from NGOs, project developers, but also the amazing projects I've seen. I've waded through waist deep peat on Borneo. I've met villagers whose whose livelihood have been thoroughly transformed by the availability of, of carbon finance. I've seen how agroforestry can can breathe new productive life into degraded lands, how degraded croplands can turn into healthy forests and so on. That's the stuff that made me actually really fall in love with it. That's so exciting that you've been able to work at the you know, intersection of 
of impact and nature and seeing it firsthand on the ground. Your current project is Calyx Global. So tell us about this new venture. Uh, what problem or problems is it trying to solve and how does it relate to natural climate solutions? Well, Calyx Global, well, let's start with with what it is so we can per- perhaps demystify it a bit as we, as we keep talking. In a nutshell, what we are is a carbon credit ratings agency. Yeah, we assess carbon credits on two dimensions. We assess greenhouse gas integrity and uh, SDG impact. Greenhouse gas integrity refers for us to the risk that a carbon credit does or doesn't actually meet its core promise. Um, and the core promise of a carbon credit is that it stands for one metric ton of removed or reduced CO2 emissions or its equivalent. And what we're trying to rate is the risk associated with that. Does it actually stand for a ton or does it stand for less or for nothing at all? And and to be precise, we don't actually measure that. We just say what's the risk associated with it. And the, the parallel I could draw is to bond ratings where the rating, whether that's in, in the case of bond ratings, it's like a triple A AAA or a B or a B minus or, or something like that, where that stands for the risk of default. So I think that's a somewhat useful parallel to draw. We also look at SDG impact, and that's that's a reference to a lot of carbon projects, uh, including nature-based carbon projects, making claims uh, that they contribute to a variety of sustainable development goals. And what we're trying to do is to bring an independent um, assessment to, hey, is that is are those claims actually based on something? Is there a real impact? Are there real outcomes associated with those claims? But to assess, to address your other question around what problem are we trying to solve? Is it it actually it goes back to what carbon markets fundamentally are? Carbon markets are are fundamentally trust-based, yeah? Because when you transact a carbon credit, when you transact a ton of CO2 removals or reductions, you don't actually exchange a physical good, not even at the end of a settlement period. It's not as if I'm going out there with a plastic bag, collecting a ton of CO2 and saying, yep, don't worry, it's here. I put it in the warehouse, it's taken care of. And so the, the whole concept of the carbon market really rests on the trust that when you purchase um, or retire a carbon credit, that somebody has properly done that job. And therefore, for the market to work well, there needs to be trust. Yeah, Carbon credit users and buyers, they want to know that what's written on the wrapper or the face value is actually true, both in, in CO2 terms and in terms of SDG impact or claimed co-benefits. Now, in in compliance markets, confidence in credits really rests primarily with the effectiveness of the regulator. And this role doesn't exist today in voluntary markets. In voluntary markets, buyers and intermediaries rely on assurances from either project developers or or brokers uh, or other intermediaries or the standards that certify credits. Empirical review, however, shows that empirical review on credit quality shows that there are both, to put it bluntly, good and uh, bad credits. And, and this issue has gained a lot of attention, and especially as carbon markets have been taking off 
uh, in an unprecedented way in the last couple of years, this issue's gotten more attention. Buyers and developers, I would say, are, are coming under scrutiny from journalists, from environmental NGOs, and they're being challenged, among other factors, on the quality of the credits that they use as part of offsetting programs. And there's also a growing body of peer-reviewed academic research into this topic that, that really challenge the, I wouldn't quite call it the veracity, but the solidity, the amount of trust you can place in the carbon claims by, carb, by certain types of carbon credits. And, and if you look at it from, from the buyer perspective, from individuals, organizations, companies who want to use carbon credits as part of climate strategies or because they feel it's the right thing to do, there is obviously a real interest in understanding quality and impact of, of carbon credits. And that's only going to grow as and what's the big driving factor behind all the, the growing interest in carbon markets today is corporate interest. And we can go into what why that's the case. But as corporates make bigger and bigger commitments to carbon credits, both in terms of volume and in, in terms of value, it's going to become more important that quality and impact or doubts about quality and impact don't become an Achilles heel. I can imagine if corporates buy a couple of hundred, a couple of hundreds of tons and that represents a low financial number, it doesn't actually matter that much. If something goes badly wrong, too bad, we tried it, uh, we write it off and we move on. But if companies start making multi-million dollar commitments to it, then both reputationally and financially, this matters. And other parties care too, right? Environmental NGOs and others care that if carbon credits become a an integral part of the dialogue around climate action plans, then Every stakeholder has an interest in knowing that's really based on actual climate action. So that's why we're, we got into this. We feel there is a, a real need for an independent assessment of quality and impact to help this market. That's what Calix is all about. And when, when you're talking about some of the quality issues, what do you see as, as some of the, the specific challenges? And I'm curious, when you're actually doing these ratings, what's the process and, and how are you doing it in a way that is trusted? Perhaps what we, what we can do is start with defining quality a little bit. Quality to me is confidence that a carbon credit represents one metric ton of removed or reduced CO2 emissions or their equivalent, and that the claims of impact on sustainable development goals are based on real action and real outcomes. Yeah, that to us is the fundament of quality. That's what's going to be needed for carbon markets to grow up and be more impactful and stand a chance of really fulfilling that higher expectation that people are having of them. Now, the way we look at quality, we we then parse it up into drivers of quality or core quality criteria. And among those are, are ones that you guys have definitely come across. The risk of additionality or lack thereof, the risks associated with the possibility of overcrediting. And overcrediting can be a consequence of things like our baselines properly defined, is the monitoring plan properly set up and a, and a few other factors is leakage probably accounted for is, is a factor in that. Then there is what is the risk of impermanence, so that the whole permanence question. And, and we also look at 
what is the likelihood um, or the possibility that multiple claims exist around the same mitigation action. And what we do is we take a very systematic approach. We, we look um, across a, a wide variety of different crediting types. So yes, we look at nature-based carbon credits, but we also look at credits based on renewable energy or landfill gas or clean cookstoves and a whole range of other credit types. So our, our aim is to be able to cover most, if not all, of the voluntary carbon markets. And we look systematically in a kind of layered or cascaded way across first understanding the risk that's inherent to the crediting type, yeah, the activity. And to give some examples, for example, in nature, we, we distinguish obviously avoided deforestation from uh, forest management from uh, reforestation but but at we go much more granular than that and make distinctions between avoided and un, sorry planned and unplanned deforestation but in the landfill gas space we distinguish between landfill gas projects that do or don't have electricity generation with a captured with a captured methane and distinguish between the, the types of countries in which it happens. And finally, we where that's needed, we also look at project-specific criteria. But anyway, we look in a very systematic way across the life of a credit, how it was designed and generated and so on, and then develop a, a risk assessment. Does the credit stand for a ton of CO2 removal or reductions. And similarly, we're, we have developed an earlier version of, of our assessment of SDG claims and are, are continuing to improve on that. That's been a, a significant piece of work. We've benefited from input from a, a variety of experts on that, but that's in a nutshell how, how we go about it. That's super interesting. So just so we understand a bit better, what are the inputs into these assessments of quality that you're doing? Like, are, are you doing something different from what others have access to? Are you stitching sort of together different data sets that others might not think to in in evaluating these claims? Well, there's an important piece here of of building on experience of people who have been in carbon markets collectively for decades and decades and really deeply understanding where the possible pitfalls are with regard to using the rules of specific standards and specific methodologies or protocols, as well as the underlying nature of what is the mitigation activity? What is the activity, the intervention that creates the carbon sequestration or the avoided emission? And on that basis, really developing that that rigorous step-by-step approach of, I'm going to abuse the word a little bit, of, of taxonomizing risk. Now, the reason I shouldn't have used that word is step one in that process is actually building a taxonomy of the carbon markets and understanding how different mitigation activities, different activity types in the carbon market lead to different risks as it pertains to risks that additionality isn't properly accounted for or all these reasons for possible overcrediting not being accounted for and so on. So it's what really makes it possible is first understanding the carbon markets and how different credit types are different. Second is building on expertise on when you've 
organize the carbon market in that logical combination of activity types and standard rules and methodology approach. In terms of data sets, there is a lot of data out there. Yeah, Fortunately, and that's a good thing, projects have to publish a fair amount of data on how they put their project together. That's part of the due diligence process that, that is imposed on projects as they register themselves with one of the known standards. Depending on the type of, of project and that in, in nature-based projects, it may be that we need to use geospatial data that exists out there to double check or, or confirm certain assumptions made in the design of the project. And we've worked with a team of GIS specialists to develop our own models in terms of enabling us to make assessments on that. So there is quite a bit of data out there that allows for the, the type of rigorous analysis that I was just talking about. Yeah, Duncan, what you're describing sounds somewhat similar to what you know these standards bodies are already doing and, and verifiers and validation bodies. So can you explain a little bit more about how you see the distinction between Calix Global and the role of these standards bodies? And how do you see those standards bodies evolving in the future? And how will Calix Global interact with the work that they do? I think, Julia, first of all, I think the whole carbon credit ecosystem is changing and will change as a result of the growth and demand that's going on. Yeah? Existing players like standards bodies and verifiers will need to grow in scope and in size. And they play a very important role in terms of laying out rules um, and standards and procedures that projects can use to, to do, and I'm going to call it asset creation, yeah, the creation of carbon credits. And that needs to continue to evolve and and grow. And I think there will be a lot of change in that ecosystem and new additions. Yeah, there's change that's being offered by new technologies, be it spatial imaging, GIS related technology that allows monitoring in a way that that gets better and better and data is becoming available on a, in a freer and freer way. I think there will be a lot of digitally enabled improvement of the whole system of measurement, reporting, and verification and making sure that we can track a carbon asset, in other words, a ton of of sequestered carbon along value chains and change of custody. And I hate to word too many buzzwords, but somewhere, somehow, somebody's going to find a smart way of using blockchain technologies for that. But again, I think it's important too to be wary of of the buzz. But and I think there's other digital innovation that is absolutely called for and will happen in this space. I think we now have an opportunity for the first time because there's so much interest and so much new demand that's that's happening in carbon markets that you'll see a lot of change. Um, existing players in the ecosystem are going to grow, are going to change, are going to continue improving. And I know there's been improvement happening over the past uh, a decade or two as carbon markets started to exist and started to grow. And I think there's, there's more improvement coming down the turnpike. And there's new players like ourselves. What we're trying to do is to provide buyers and users of carbon markets with an independent source of confidence that what they deal with can be relied on to actually represent what it says on the package. So just as a, a very basic follow-up, in terms of characterizing the 
readings and, and information that you're providing about projects compared to what's available on the market today. Is it that the, the data is different than what you can get today, or it's better, or it's something that you can compare more easily across projects, or just that it's more like trustworthy and reliable? I, I'd actually put it slightly differently. I'd say today, if you're a buyer, it's not really, there isn't a, an independent source of insight that will tell you, hey, you can have high confidence that this credit is what it stands for. That's not available today. And in that sense, I think we provide something new. Now, I'm, I'm sure there will be other players who are going to offer similar services. And I see that only as proof that there is or was a gap here. But that's what's new. That's We, we are setting ourselves up as an unconflicted player. We don't buy or sell carbon. And we don't, we're, we're setting up our commercial model in a way that we don't make more money by issuing higher credit ratings. And, and yeah, that, that's the innovation we try to bring. We do it on, a, on an independent basis. We're, we're setting ourselves up to be transparent so that you can see how we do our ratings and it doesn't become some kind of black box that everybody kind of wonders, hey, how did this credit get a, get a good rating and that one got a got a lesser rating but yeah that i think it is what makes it something that it doesn't exist today i see the, the difference between ourselves and other parts of the ecosystem including the standards bodies and the verifying bodies more as a complementary relationship if you don't mind just draw the parallel all of us who are who are active in business at least we've all grown up with a very elaborate incredibly built out financial system. Yeah, there's intermediaries, there's all kinds of actors that play niche roles, that play big roles, there's banks, funds, ratings agencies, that there's there's tons and tons, dozens of, of different parties to make that work. We're we're finally getting into a world where we're not only looking at financial balance sheets and PLs. We're starting to look at what I'll call the planetary balance sheet, the planetary P&L. A lot of companies, institutions, organizations, and us as individuals have all have we all have an environmental balance sheet. Unfortunately, for most organizations and individuals, it's a negative balance sheet. But we're starting to be aware of it. We're starting to manage it. Now, imagine that whole space, and I think the four of us would agree that that space is at least as important and who and you could argue more important than that entire financial world it's more important we manage that balance sheet and yet there are so few parties involved in organizing that entire space it's almost like an like a like an entire new continent that's out there to be discovered with so few existing uh, players agents to help us structure and organize it. And so I, that's how I see the role of different different organizations, including Calix Global, trying to help people navigate that new continent um, of planetary balance sheets. Now that sounds a bit hairy-fairy, so we should get back to something more concrete, but that's how I see it. No, I think that completely resonates. One more question on Calix's structuring and how you thought about it. So. Is Calix Global a nonprofit or a for-profit? And sort of how did your team 
think about puts and takes in 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 that structure? No, it's a great that's a great question. We this is something that my co-founder Donna Lee and I spent quite a bit of time debating going backwards and forwards on because clearly there is a real societal mission behind what we're doing. Our our core mission is to improve the impact of carbon markets. There wasn't a clear-cut answer in saying, look, it's going to work better to do this as a for-profit or it's going to work better the other way. Uh, At the end of the day, we had to weigh pros and cons and decided for a for-profit model. What matters more to us, though, or what matters a lot to us is, with that choice being made, is what is under the hood of Calix Global. Yeah, what do we, what's core, what's important to us as we start building this? What's clear uh, between Donna and I and the people we work with is that we're building a mission-centric venture. Our true north is increasing the impact of carbon markets. I mean, it's actually really helpful to have a true north like this, to have that clear and central, because it, it sometimes there's decisions we need to make about, hey, do we position it this way? Do we design a product product this way or that way? And having that clear true north of, hey, it's about achieving impact at scale can all of a sudden make a decision that seemed difficult a lot easier. Now, in line with this, as I mentioned earlier, we acknowledge the crucial importance of credibility, credibility in the sense of People need to feel confident because our core goal is to increase the confidence that buyers and users of carbon credits have when they deal with carbon credits. So therefore, we need to be credible. And that's going to be built on things like us being transparent in the frameworks we use to assess carbon credits, also in terms of how we're governed and having an element of technical independent governance included in our governance structure. And what I mentioned before, avoiding conflicts in our business model. Another piece that's going to be important to that is is ubiquity, is making sure our ratings are available where decisions are are made. And we're taking that as a key piece in product development. So those are, if anything, those were the key elements as we were building Calix. I think it's very fortunate that we live and we're building Calix Global in an era where I believe it is possible to put impact and mission at the core of of an enterprise of a for-profit company and that's what we're that's what we're setting out to do. So we've talked a lot about supply side integrity here which is obviously central to to Calix's proposition which is really around the integrity of the the credits that customers are purchasing. But we were curious to what extent Calix also supports buyers in demand side integrity and to our listeners what we mean by demand side integrity just to borrow from the, from the World Resources Institute here is that Carbon credits don't provide companies with an incentive to delay emissions in their own operations and their own value chains, but but rather that offsets and credits are used to accelerate the rate at which they're they're reducing overall emissions. So, how does Calix think about this and striking a balance? You're you're absolutely right in in highlighting demand side integrity. I think it's hugely important to, it's a big important part of the debate, and it is clearly an area where where guidance is needed. With Calix, I think we've bitten off a really big chunk on the supply side integrity as it is. That's what we want to focus on. We want to do a really good job, as good a job as possible in giving carbon market participants independent insights into quality and impact. And I, for now, at least, we're going to have to rely on other initiatives to to tackle demand side 
integrity. And the good news is I'm seeing some really encouraging progress being made by initiatives. Uh, the VCMI, you guys may have heard of the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, which is connected, but at the same time separate from the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets. I think there's good thinking going on. And I think also organizations and corporations are becoming a lot more conscious about not being able to use carbon markets as a silver bullet or as a free pass. But just to be clear, Calix Global, we're, we think we've bitten off an ambitious big chunk and are focused on the supply side. Speaking of the task force for scaling voluntary carbon markets and VCMI, curious what you think they're getting right, what might be missing, how's, how's it going? I've followed it closely and we have dialogues going on with these initiatives and a number of others. Yeah, I think at one of the key observations and recommendations that are coming out of the, the task force conclusions is around the importance of quality. And that makes total sense. If you look at at least part of what the TSVCM is trying to achieve, is it started, it's trying to lay down the, the, the blueprint for how you can scale carbon markets, which today are for more than 95%, actually significantly more than 95%, a bilaterally transacted over-the-counter market where one carbon credit is entirely different from another, both in terms of what it does, how it does carbon removal or re or emissions reduction, the quality and the confidence you can have in it, the co-benefits it, it finances. It's changing that market, that highly bespoke, non-fungible market into something more fungible that you can trade and transact in on larger scale. So that that's what they're trying to do. It, to me, stands entirely to reason that one of the key elements that you would want in that, yeah, in that transition from, in that kind of to-from transition, that you need some form of comparability, fungibility. Yeah, I always make the comparison when people ask me, what do you, how would you characterize today's carbon market? I would say market is in some ways a bit of a euphemism. Yeah? It's a bit more of a flea market than a market. And, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have walked around on Sunday morning flea markets and you, people setting up little tents with stuff they, they have on offer for each other. And one, I, as I said, I grew up in Northwest Europe and you walk around in the flea market and one person will offer old comic books and the other will offer an old uncle's chandelier Yes, it's a market, but it's not a market where you can trade goods with each other because they're not comparable. And that's where we see ourselves coming in to provide that, that common language of quality that allows people to say, okay, well, this carbon credit is worth exactly the same as that one, or it's, it's actually should trade at a bit of a discount or a surplus versus that one. And that's one of the things that I really hope that we're going to be seeing in the months and years to come as a result of our credit ratings is that we see those filter through into price discovery. Yeah, because that's the signals that we would look at in terms of seeing, are we having impact with our ratings? Yeah, this, that's, that's one of the key things that I'm going to be observing. And I'm seeing some early signs based on the work we're doing with our current customers that we're seeing. We're providing advice and insights that are allowing our customers to make better informed decisions on the kinds of carbon credits they want to buy. And that's going to lead to the, the credits they buy 
becoming more valuable and as opposed to the credits they don't buy. Um, and that's an important signal that I think also project developers have been waiting for. If you were developing a red project in uh, as late as now, I would argue, but especially 12 months ago, 18 months ago, 24 months ago, the incentive for you to set up the project in a with with conservative parameters that would make sure that the quality of the resulting credits is high, that the confidence you can have in the face value one ton is high, the incentive wasn't always there. At least the incentive wasn't there in terms of how it was expressed in the price you would fetch in the market for that credit. What we want to do is make sure that developers who put um, quality and confidence at the center of their plans get more rewarded by higher prices. That's one of the ways in which we're, we're going to see hopefully this filter through. Yeah, and we've spoken a lot, or you, you spoke a lot about quality, and you also touched a little bit about scale and the need for scale. I mean, I'm astounded by some of the numbers that have come out about the demand that's coming, the tsunami of demand on its way. Like a company like Shell, for example, mentioned in one of its press releases, it's going to need 120 million tons of nature-based credits per year um, in the coming years. So what is the biggest barrier to achieving that scale? And can we get that scale fast enough without um, you know, sacrificing quality? Well, look, first of all, I think there, there's two elements in your question. One is, look, how much how much is a good thing as in how much makes sense in in corporate climate strategies i think it's important regardless of who does the the use of the carbon credits who does the offsetting it's important and that goes to the demand side integrity we talked about a little bit earlier before in terms of okay what role does offsetting play in climate strategies so that's one factor and um but even if we get that entirely, there's a question of how do you get to the kind of mega scale and giga scale that that people are are saying or analyzing that we're going to need. And that's that's an, it's a very important question. I'd say, look, you could take an economist look at this and saying and say increased demand will lead to increasing prices, and that in itself is going to lead through supply side elasticity to more supply and I, I don't want to make it a too technical conversation but that will happen that is happening more demand is leading to increased prices earlier this year opus a market surveying organization started publishing a daily report on prices of red credits and i think when they issued their first report in january prices were below five dollars and also don't look at the reports every day. Uh, I, I believe today prices are at more than double that. Equally, some some credits that actually were trading at less than a dollar a ton uh, as late as mid last year. I've heard some brokers and intermediaries tell me that these those same credits are trading at at more than three dollars today, and so on. I give you another half a dozen anecdotal data points of specific credits that were trading at at around $5 and today are trading more than $25. So it, it's just prices are increasing and it is leading to a lot more money coming into 
development opportunities. Uh, but and that that's true for nature. It's also true for other types of crediting. So that will come into play. So you will see more supply coming on stream as a result of of credits just being being priced at a higher level. And that's good news, a priori. It's it's good news. It means that there's going to be carbon finance available for for abatement activities, for removal and reduction initiatives, programs, projects that weren't able to get financing before. Now, it obviously comes also with, with a bit of a caveat. We have to make sure collectively, all players in this ecosystem, that it's done properly. And especially And that's what the podcast is about, natural climate solutions, especially in nature, where what we do, how we set up projects and programs in nature is so intricately, integrally connected to communities and people who live in and around uh, natural ecosystems, whose livelihoods depend on natural ecosystems whose traditions and culture depends on depend on natural ecosystems make sure in the haste to create new carbon projects and programs that we don't take shortcuts with all people who are rightfully stakeholders and interest holders in in natural ecosystems so that's something that I think we need to be very careful of and on that point we we completely agree it's the question is how you implement nature-based solutions in a way that sort of just and and respects the people that are already in those communities is a is a really interesting and challenging one and and going back to sort of what Calic is is able to offer does it does it provide users with a way of thinking about some of the social benefits but also risks in comparing these different opportunities look i'm going to be careful of not suggesting that we are a solution to all ills and all dangers because that, that would be that would be wrong. Let me put it this way: We are trying to, when we assess carbon credits, we think it's important not only to look at the greenhouse gas side of the story, the, the confidence around it, 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 its its performance and its function on the GHG claim, but also with regard to what it does in a in an SDG sense, and I'm not only talking about SDGs number one to 17, but also just how it performs in a broader ESG sense. And where we are at today is we've started by looking at some of the certifications that credits can obtain. And there's things like the CCB, and that's the, the Climate Community and Biodiversity Certification Credits Can Get, or SD Vista, which is around which is one of the standards managed by Vera. We'll also look at gold standard for the global goals. And and we have started making assessments around, okay, how do those certifications work? And we're now at a level where we start looking one level beneath that in terms of, okay, what does what to make of the various claims that projects make? It's an area that we think is is important. I think it's an area in which we're going to be continuing to develop and to, to enhance what we're able to to do and to provide to buyers of carbon credits, because I think this is going to matter to a lot of people coming into the market. And I think just making sure that as transparently as possible, people transacting in the market know about this aspect also of how carbon credits are created, I think the better the market will be for it. 
Switching gears just a little bit. So but before Calyx, you spent some time building nature-based solutions platform at a Fortune 500 company. Obviously, as we've talked about the last 12 to 18 months, have seen a, a flurry of corporate commitments, but this was actually very far ahead of its time in many ways. would love if you could just share a bit more about this work, what you learned, and why nature-based solutions were a focus at that Yeah, look, I, I, I do feel quite fortunate that I got to, to get going building a business in this space before before a lot of people became so excited about it. But that being said, there were people already in this space for decades who saw the light before I did and who who've done some really exciting development work. So it's not as if I was I was there first. But building Shell's nature based solutions business was for me a it was a great experience. I, I feel very lucky I was able and allowed to do it. I got a lot of great support from the top to go after it and um, a very broad license uh, to go and build. And honestly, I had immense fun doing it. I'm no longer at Shell, so I, I, I can't speak on, on, on their behalf in any way. But perhaps a, a couple of observations from the four years I spent there. First one is that while I was there, everybody was clear from the top on down that NBS could never come instead of other decarbonization activities, that it could only be an addition to and not an instead of. The proof of that maxim, which I'd call it, is obviously in the pudding, and the pudding is still being baked. But that direction was definitely there. The second piece, which you know I thought was really important, and obviously it's something I helped shape, is a strong belief that being active in NBS was about more than just buying credits, that it actually meant getting to know the action on the ground, the projects, the programs, and investing directly in those. And and finally, I'd say my third observation was that while I was there and as the whole team started started to dig in deeper, we realized that quality was something we needed to invest in to understand better and deeper. And we were fortunate in the sense that we had the resources to, and some actually some what I'd call world-class experts to help us navigate that. I, I don't think that as things accelerate and more and more companies get into this space, that a lot of organizations are going to have that same luxury. And and that's exactly why uh, I co-founded Calix is because I, I thought having access to that expertise was absolutely crucial in being able to navigate a large corporation's activities in carbon markets. But I also realized that not everybody or very few actually were going to have access to their own little SWAT team of of quality experts. That's where the idea of Calix Global in some ways also helped come from. Terrific. Yeah. It's, it's so cool to watch from afar the evolution of both Shell's NBS uh, work and then just the MBS work across various companies. It's, it's really exciting to see the private sector stepping up in big ways and trying to figure out how we can drive action collectively forward. And it's been great, Duncan, to hear your perspectives and the work that you're doing at Calix Global, which is all critical to advancing the future of these markets and real climate action. So we're getting towards the end of our podcast. Um, we have a few more questions, but one quick question I wanted to ask was, how can listeners 
are interested in getting involved in natural climate solutions or leveraging you know, the toolkit, get involved. How, how would you recommend they get started? I'd start by saying, look, there's no time like the present. I'm going to use that nice trite uh, saying and then the other one that many people on this podcast have for sure heard about, that there's the best time to plant a tree was 15 years ago. The second best time is, is today. It's, it's trite and overused, but it's so true. And so many places, I bet you that eight out of 10 listeners, if they looked around them, would have a, an opportunity to participate in some kind of community planting exercises. And we, not long ago, a few years ago, planted a tree at my son's school. And it's just delightful whenever, you know, at least in pre-COVID times, I was able to drop him off at school and we could look together at the tree that has a plaque with his name uh, around it somewhere or hung around it. It's just, and that's obviously not as if those trees that you're going to plant in a community program are going to have the most massive impact on climate change. But what's it, what it is about is the connection, um, the engagement, and cultivating a sensibility in community that nature is around us and important to us. Now, I obviously hope that we've got some big spending executives listening to the podcast, and I'd say to them that nature has so much to offer as, and I'll put it in very corporate terms, as an asset class. It has so much to offer uh, in terms of impact on climate mitigation, but also other types of impact. And I'd say loudly and clearly, don't be fooled by some of the, what I'll call misleading information that's out there around, hey, yeah, but because of the possibility of reversals or measurement problems, this is not a reliable mitigation lever. I'd say that is just simply not correct. And and I think there's there's been more than enough progress being made around how we do this properly and how you can get information about good credits that that's that would be misleading. Sorry, I had to put a little plug in there for NBS. <laughs> And in addition to Calix, who do you think is doing some of the most exciting work to scale natural climate solutions today? I think there are some really unsung heroes out there. People who haven't gone for what I'll call the low-hanging carbon, the easier ways of creating credits, but with only with a lot of sweat and bootstrapping. And bear in mind that we're talking about price levels today that were less than probably half or less just a few years ago, but but projects in, in the realm of agroforestry, community forestry, and even some of the, I'd say some of the blue carbon restoration projects that I'll give us a very sophisticated name to, but it, 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 I'll call it multi-revenue ecosystem services business, yeah, that really build a, a sustainable business that doesn't only depend on carbon finance, but has a number of engines firing at the same time with real long-term employment benefits. I think those are some of the unsung heroes. They're not always huge projects, but you can find them in Africa, in, in Asia, in Latin America. And I hope that a lot more finance and support is going to come their way. That's great. Uh, I love what you said about nature as an asset class and, and also just about the, the urgency of taking action now. Um, we talk a lot on this podcast about the, the time value of carbon. So, yep. um, well, we're drawing to the, the end of this recording, but we wanted to ask you a few quick, fun lightning round questions. So I'm just going to kick them off. So Duncan, what is your favorite carbon sink? I'll give you two. The peat bog, <laughs> the peat bog and the train. Uh, the peat bog, because, you know, 
areas where water and land mix are the source of all life, and they're just so rich in biodiversity and carbon and so many other ecosystem services, the train, because I just love I love traveling by train. I wish more people did it. Um, and it's a great place to read a book, to think, to, yeah, to enjoy and look out the window. That's great. Well, I know we have a, a few peat lovers among us here. And what's your favorite book that you read this year? Oh, that's a terrible question to ask me. I'm a passionate reader, and I tend to be super engrossed in what I'm reading at the moment. Right now, I'm reading We Are Bellingcat about this new brand of citizen investigative journalism. I think it's great, and I get lots of ideas from it in terms of stuff we could add to Calix Global. Uh, but, but So that that's the one I really love at the moment. Before that, I was totally enchanted with Ministry of the Future. But one that I can't wait to read, and specifically around NBS, is, is Richard Powers' new book, uh, mm. Bewilderment. I was totally captivated by the overstory, his last novel, and I can't wait to, to get going with that. With a new- those were all excellent answers. We will have to check all of those out. What was your favorite COVID quarantine activity? And hopefully that's perhaps drawing to a close as, as hopefully COVID is also drawing to a close. I believe it or not, I learned how to grow tropical trees from seeds just by picking up seeds as I run and trying to learn a bit about how you can make them germinate. And I've developed all kinds of contraptions, including how you can use a Ziploc bag to make seeds germinate, etc., etc. And so I've got a whole bunch of really healthy looking durian tree saplings and if anybody wants one i'd love to to get you one because i I don't have any space to to put the trees (laughs) that's amazing and that's also a great linkage to your recommendation to listeners to to get into tree planting a different note what keeps you up at night these days um honestly building a startup is quite all consuming and time intense so I, i tend to work quite late and when I do get to, to bed, I tend to just sleep and I try not to be bothered by too many things. Well, thank you for joining us for this recording quite quite early in the morning. And finally, what are you looking forward to in the remaining months of 2021? I'd like to meet a lot of surprising, amazing, refreshing people who want to build, help build, help Donna and I build um build Calix Global. We're now at a stage where we want to build and grow the team. And so I'm looking forward to meeting a lot of new people who have got fresh ideas and fresh energy and want to help build this thing that we're setting up. Absolutely. Well, we would also love to get the word out there about, about Calix Global and what you guys are working on. Well, thank you, Duncan. It's been such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you, Ida. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Julia. This has been great. I loved the other episodes you guys have put out. Um, I, uh, I I love the fact that you guys are are pointing people in into the direction of what nature can do for all of us. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com, to see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.